0: Well, this morning we're beginning a new series in First Peter, and 1 Peter deals with this big question. As Christians, who in the world are we? And under that, there are two related questions. One is a question of identity. How do we understand ourselves as Christians? What is our identity? And then secondly, how as Christians do we relate to the world around us? And this is, these are vastly important questions that we must wrestle with. I can think of no better place in the Bible that deals with how Christians should relate to society and the world around them than First Peter, and particularly one that doesn't share the beliefs and values in a world that can even be hostile towards Christians. Several books have been written recently with titles like The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Another book, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Faith in a Post-Christian World, not all will agree with the prescriptions in these books, but they are all acknowledging in some way the fact that Christian faith and practice is increasingly out of sync, and at times even at odds, with modern American life. But while this may be, seem new in an American context, for Christians in other parts of the globe, and indeed throughout history, Christian faith has meant in some way living on the margins. First Peter written in the first century, anticipates all of this. The message of First Peter is about how Christians are to live in tension with the world around them in a way that both maintains faithfulness to Jesus and seeks the good of those around us, even those who may be against us. So First Peter is a really relevant book, I think, for us to be studying right now. But also First Peter is realistic. First Peter is clear-eyed about the difficulty of being a faithful Christian. Peter here, as we'll see, Peter assumes that following Jesus will cost us something along the way. Now, this might be outright persecution, might be social marginalization, but being faithful to Jesus creates tension in ways that will place us at odds with those around us, even those that we love. And for Peter, the sufferings of Christ become a paradigm for understanding the Christian life. So, Peter is a realistic book, but also, and this is where I want us to camp a bit this morning, Peter is very hopeful, immensely hopeful, realistic, yes, about the struggles around us that we face as Christians, but also incredibly hopeful about how we are to live our life in the real world with real hope. When I lived in Mobile a couple years ago, I got to know some refugees who had recently immigrated to the U.S., and I met one guy named Jean Baptiste who was from the Congo and he came to Mobile through a refugee resettlement program with his wife and one of his kids. He'd been caught up in war and political strife in the Congo. He had no idea where one of his daughters was. Maybe she'd been kidnapped or killed, he didn't know. He ended up in a refugee camp and resettled in Mobile, Alabama of all places. His story is harrowing and He's trying now to make it in a completely new place. He's a stranger in a strange land. Refugees are faced with a crisis of identity about who they are with respect to where they live. This was certainly the experience of my friend Jean-Baptiste. Great name, by the way. They certainly feel uneasy and out of place wherever it is that they eventually land. Who am I? What's my status where I am? How should I relate to this new place in a way that engages this place, but also maintains my own sense of identity, my own background? Peter is writing to Christians who feel out of place where they live. And what he does at the very beginning, he starts driving home the importance of understanding their identity. Here's Who you are. Don't worry about what others are thinking of you or how you might be taking some heat. First and foremost, understand your identity. And in these opening verses, he impacts that in a couple of ways. First, he says, You need to know your status. Your status is actually not in question. Let me remind you of your status. And then he tells them, You need to remember your story. Your story is important and it's easy to forget. You need to remember the story. So let's look at these opening verses under those two headings. First, you need to know your status. This is what Peter's doing here in verses 1 and 2. And he shows us here that Christians have a dual identity, a dual status. And if you have a dual status, of course, this is going to create tension in the way that you live your life in the world. Verse 1 To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, first here, about their status, Peter is saying here's the first thing you need to know and understand and accept. As reality, you are to consider yourselves exiles because you are exiles. Now, this actually wouldn't have been anything new for God's people. In fact, if you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in a place like Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, God calls this guy named Abraham, and he says, I want you to go. I want you to leave your homeland, your country, your people, your kindred, and I'm going to send you out to a new place. This was a surprising kind of exile that Abraham was going to experience. But this was the beginning of this theme of God's people being sent out into the world as strangers. So at the very beginning of the story of redemption, we see this theme of God's people going out into a strange and new place as sojourners, as foreigners. But later, God's people found themselves in exile in Egypt in horrible conditions as slaves, And then after they were rescued from Egypt, they became sojourners again in a wilderness, traveling around, wandering around, waiting to enter into a more secure place. And then after God's people finally came to the promised land, hundreds of years later, after they had experienced some sense of being settled, the Babylonians invaded their land and deported most of the population back to Babylon where they lived as exiles. And our reading from Jeremiah 29 is actually speaking into this condition of God's people in exiles um, in that time. So the experience of being an exile, the experience of being a stranger, of being a sojourner, this was very important to the identity of God's people in the Old Testament. So much so that when God gave Moses the law, there was a privileged position given to refugees and sojourners. Deuteronomy 24, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. Why? Because you too were once sojourners. The whole point here is that our identity as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers in strange land, this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. So Peter is writing to exiles much in the same way that Jeremiah was writing to exiles. And we'll see a similar dynamic as it were. So what's happening here exactly in 1 Peter is Peter is writing to these exiles, notice he says he's writing to the diaspora, to all these different locales in Asia Minor. This is part of the Roman Empire, by the way, at this time. This term diaspora, or dispersion, it uh, came to refer to Jews who resided outside of Palestine, going all the way back to the Babylonian exile. And Peter, if you go all the way to the end of Peter in chapter five, he closes his letter saying he's writing from Babylon. Now, he's not literally writing from Babylon, but what he's doing here, he's signaling that he is writing as an exile to exiles. He's picking back up on these themes of the Babylonian exile. Babylon was this place of exile for God's people in the Old Testament. And Peter now is like a new Jeremiah, who himself is experiencing exile, but he's writing to encourage God's people in exiles, and he's writing to tell them, look, Here's how you're to live faithfully as God's people in this place where you have found yourselves as exiles, as strangers. Now, who, where are these initial recipients? So they're in Asia Minor, which is Turkey, the western part of Turkey uh, today. And this area had been thoroughly Romanized at this point. So many of these cities that are mentioned here, part of, the Roman, uh, part of a couple of different Roman provinces, these were cosmopolitan melting pots. There were lots of highways going through this area that brought lots of travel people from a different region who ended up settling there. It was pluralistic with old traditional religions and n- newly found religious practices, and it was under a massive bureaucratic state held together by the cult of Caesar, who by the way was considered lord and savior. All of this is in the background, and all of this is important to understand the context into which Peter is writing to these Christians who are exiles. And Peter identifies his, his audience here as exiles. This actually was a technical term that came to have theological significance. What was it like to be an alien or an exile in the Roman world? Here's how one historian put it. Quote, "...set apart from their host society... By their lack of local roots, their ethnic origin, such strangers were commonly viewed as threats to the established order and native well being. Constant exposure to local fear and suspicion, ignorant slander, discrimination, and manipulation was the regular lot of these social outsiders. So, Peter here is using a term to describe these Christians that would have had a lot of significance in terms of the, even the socio, socio-political status of what it meant to be an exile in that time. Now, why were they exiles? There's lots of questions around this. Was there some kind of event which caused them to uh, uh, emigrate to this particular land? Or is this strictly just a theological kind of designation? Lots of interesting questions uh, around, around that. But I think as we read on it in First Peter, we'll see... Whatever may have caused the condition that they're in, uh, politically, they have become exiled, strangers, because of their loyalty to Jesus. That's what's most important. Now, what does this mean for us? When people are in a country not of their own, they can take on different types of identities. So one identity is, we think about ourselves as, as, as Christians to find ourselves in a, in a place that um, seems a bit foreign to us. One particular identity could be that of an immigrant. Immigrants so naturally want to become citizens of the host land and eventually assimilate into that culture. But first, Peter will warn us against such full assimilation. Peter is going to say, look, you've got to maintain your distinctiveness from the culture that you find yourself in. There, 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 there's supposed to be a tension. There's supposed to be a rub. We can see ourselves as tourists, just sort of passing through, not really engaged with the world around us. You know, if you've traveled with a group, um, overseas, internationally. You know, you, you want to stay with the group. You want to stick with the group. You don't want to venture too far away from the group, and um, maybe you're always kind of looking for the closest Starbucks or something, you know, something that's familiar. But First Peter shows us that we're actually supposed to be engaged with the world around us. We're supposed to participate in the real world that's around us. We're not just tourists who are merely passing through. That would be a wrong reading of First Peter. But there's another way, the way that Peter develops throughout this whole letter, and that's the way of being a resident alien. Peter, he shows us in this letter what it means to live faithfully to Christ and tension with the world around us. And Peter again and again will echo Jeremiah's letter to exiles. Did did you hear that? Jeremiah is writing to folks who are in a, a hostile environment, and he says, look, plant roots, build homes. Um, Participate in the world around you. Do it faithfully as God's people, but be engaged with the world around you. And in fact, seek the welfare. Seek the good of the place where I have sent you. For in their well-being, you will find your own well-being. This is a dynamic that Peter, I think, develops in this book. So yes, maintain your distinctiveness, absolutely. Don't compromise any of that. But there's a tension, too, that you have to be engaged with the world around you. So, our status We're exiles, but as Christians, Peter says, we're elect, elect exiles. Verse 2, To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter is saying that while our relationship with the world may be a bit ambiguous, here is our relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're the people of God. It shows here the Father's work. God is a loving Father who has chosen us to be His children. It was no more our idea to be a Christian than it was for us to be a son or a daughter. But here we see the Father's loving choice of us, calling of us. We see the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit who has set us apart. It's the Spirit who has grabbed us and joined us in with God's people to be conformed to Christ. We see the Son's work. For we're chosen by God, we're set apart by the Spirit for a purpose. What's this purpose? Peter says here, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot we could unpack here, but there's an allusion here to a ceremony going all the way back to Exodus chapter 24. Keith actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in the Maundy Thursday service. This was when God's newly formed people of Israel, they pledged their obedience to follow God, and then they were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. This is where this covenant was formed here at Sinai. Now the blood of Jesus Christ is the basis of this new covenant. It's the basis of our new, this new relationship with God. The new people of God are being formed by the blood of Christ. And here, in this new covenant, we are called to loyalty. We are called to allegiance to Jesus. So what does all this mean? We are the newly formed people of God now. We may feel homeless and out of place at times, But our new home has been established by God with the people of God. I remember a few times in elementary school when I absolutely dreaded going to school. And by the way, overall, it was elementary school was a happy experience for me. But I just remember there were a few times when I just like I hated it and I felt so uncomfortable and out of place. I mean, you know this feeling of being out of place and not just like just just that feeling of, of dread. And I remember my mom told me one time just very simple words. This has stuck with me. She said, look, no matter what happens, you always can come home. That was very comforting to an insecure fourth grader. As God's people in Christ, we're exiles who will definitely feel out of place, yes, but we can always come home to the people of God. This is another theme that Peter's going to develop in this letter the importance of Christian community, the importance of the church, the people of God. So this is our status. We are exiles, but we're exiles who have been called by God. Peter does something else here. He shows us our story. He affirms our status, but he reminds us of our our story. My friend Jean-Baptiste, as an exile, he has an important story of a Congolese man who had to flee his country and now is seeking a new life. This is part of his identity. Our identity is formed over time by the stories we tell ourselves. This is important for exiles. It's important for exiles to know their story. It's important for Christians. Uh, the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, he says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And what Peter does here in verses 3 through 9, He gives us the story, the story of the gospel in which we understand our identity. Look at verses 3-5. through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The story here, it starts with God's mercy, which causes us to be born again. So Peter here, he uses this language of new birth. Where do you think Peter got this idea of new birth? We got it from Jesus. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, of being born again. And when you're born, you're born into what? You're born into a family. So being born again into a new family. But also, Peter says, we are born into a living hope. This story of new birth, this story of the gospel here, is a hopeful story. Our story is one of hope. Peter shows us the foundation of this hope. The foundation of this hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're born into the story of hope. It's based on the resurrection of Christ. This is not pie-in-the-sky hope. This is not hope against hope, but it's hope that is based on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, imagine Peter's transformation. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He goes from someone who denies Christ, he's defeated, he's defeated, But he's also restored by the resurrected Christ. And this changes everything for Peter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of a new creation, a new world, a new reality. And though we may live as exiles in this world, we're born into a new world because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where our hope is on the resurrection of Christ. And so this story that we're born into, this is a hopeful story. And the foundation of that hope is the resurrection. This is one of the reasons we're studying 1 Peter during the season of Easter. Peter, he does two things brilliantly. He calls us to deal with the real world and the struggles that we face. But he's calling us to do so in the story of hope, founded on the resurrection. But also here we see hope's future. Peter wants us to see our lives in this arc of hope our hope that is anchored in the past resurrection, but in the present, it looks to the future. He says, we await an inheritance. Verse four, we're waiting on this and We've been born into this living hope and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, maybe you've imagined what it would be like to have a vast financial inheritance waiting for you. You've imagined the security and the, the peace of mind that that would give. But yet we know wealth can be lost, markets crash, and even inheritances are no sure thing. But Peter says when it comes to our real inheritance, something far more important than financial security, there's just no uncertainty about it at all. It's a sure thing. Sure as Jesus rose from the dead, so God keeps this inheritance safe for us in heaven. Our treasure, our inheritance is kept for us. And in verse 5, he says, We are kept for our inheritance, we are kept for our treasure. You have to imagine some of these exiles whom Peter addresses likely have lost property, wealth, maybe even inheritances. But Peter says that although we may suffer great loss now, as members of this new family, we have a family inheritance that is securely guarded and kept for us, and it will be ours. But what is this inheritance? What is this inheritance that Peter is talking about? Well, remember in the Old Testament, Israel, they uh, were wandering in the desert as strangers. Read about this in the book of Numbers. But God promised an inheritance of land. And this promise sustained them through these trials of wandering. And God now promises an inheritance to us. It is far greater than any plot of land. And it's an inheritance that can never be lost. Ultimately, God promises himself as our inheritance. Our salvation is our inheritance. The full glory of being with the Lord forever. But as one day we will inherit an unbridled relationship with God, we will also inherit a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus says, Lucidus, this, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So there's this relational inheritance we have of being with the Lord forever. But there's also this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. that is a part of that inheritance that awaits us. But until then, our inheritance papers are kept safe and nothing can revoke them. Now, in the meantime, Peter's realistic. There will be trials. But these trials, he wants us to know, are always, as he says, but for a while. They're temporary. And they need to be understood always in the context of God's narrative in Jesus Christ. And we need to remember, we have been scripted into this story through the new birth. Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter doing here? If you understand yourself as part of this hopeful story in Jesus Christ, you will have a new perspective on whatever trials you face. Some of you know what it's like to endure a difficult job that you don't really like. But if you know the job is not forever, if you have some promising leads out there, you're able to put the job in perspective and not let it crush you. You're telling yourself, this is but for a while. This is not forever, and I can make it another six months, maybe even another year. Um, High schoolers, maybe you're just tired of school. The structure, the cliques, all the projects, you you just hate it. But you know that there is life after high school. College for you, you think, will mean freedom. High school is just but for a little while, right? You can endure. You can get through it. Peter gives us perspective on our trials by placing them in the story of a living hope. We have a guaranteed inheritance secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can hope even now through trials. We can rejoice, as Peter says. Peter wants to stir our imagination with the coming glory of Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 5, we await a salvation about to be revealed. Verse 7, he says we await the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, we await the salvation, the full salvation of our souls. There's power in a truly hopeful story to guide us through difficult times. Now, for most, I think experiences of suffering and trials are all understood under this just dark cloud of despair. And it's understandable that we would feel that way. That's why Peter is telling us, look, you've got to remember this great hopeful story. He wants our imagination to be converted in the way that we see suffering and trials because we have been brought into the story of hope. We can be realistic about trials, yes, but even these trials, Peter tells us, look, this is a way of refining your faith. And how do we remember the story of the gospel? Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We remember this story again and again by faith. Theologian uh, Miroslav Wolf says that identity can be forged in two basic ways either through a negative process of rejecting beliefs and practices of others, or through a positive process of giving allegiance to something distinctive. The negative way leads to fear, defensiveness, and resentment. The other way, the way that Peter does it here, it instills hope. And Peter here, he's orienting us, riding, again, writing to Christians who are in very difficult circumstances, much more difficult than, than we experience right now. And rather than immediately listing all of the difficulties that they're going through and identifying potential enemies and telling them how they take a defensive posture, what does he do? He gives them a story of hope. And he says, let this story guide you. Let this story orient you to the world around you, to the people around you. Peter's letter has resonated with Christians in many different times, in many different places. And here at the outset of this letter, he wants us to understand our identity. Who are we? Who are we in the world as God's people? We have to know who we are if we're going to know what to do and how to relate to the world around us. 1 Peter chapter 5, at the very end of the letter, Peter, he tells us, he tells us why he's writing this letter. He says, I've written this to you, exhorting and declaring that this, that is to everything that he's written about before, this is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And he starts here by reminding us of our identity, our status and our story in Christ. Peter is writing to a church facing pressure and an identity crisis of sorts. And his purpose is to encourage us, no matter what pressure we face, to stand firm firm in the true grace of God. And we do that by knowing our status. Exiles, yes, but we're God's elect exiles. And we do it by knowing our story. The story of being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our identity. In the name of the Father, the Son,